Welcome to Beyond This Point. I'm Gabriel Stromberg, Creative Director of Civilization. So, what is the point of Beyond This Point? The inspiration for this podcast really came about through our studio, being so inspired by those around us who we work, collaborate, and engage with. Artists, business owners, designers, and leaders of all types. We recognized the value in having access to these distinct perspectives and wanted to create a conversation that puts a spotlight on different ways of seeing, thinking, and making. Archie Boston got his start as a graphic designer in the 1960s. As one of the very few African Americans in the industry, he faced numerous hurdles from the very start. He was able to channel the racism and discrimination he faced into his work, ultimately creating industry-altering designs that are just as powerful and relevant today. In the late 60s, Archie opened a design studio with his brother, and using provocation and humor, they brought racist history to the forefront through their design work and the materials they used to promote their studio. In one poster, Archie and his brother, Brad, are pictured side-by-side, shirtless, with a for-sale sign around each of their necks and a list of their measurements and skills. I was honored to sit down with Archie to discuss how these works pushed the boundaries of the field of graphic design at the time, the controversies they stirred up, and what they ultimately meant for his career. And now, let's go beyond this point. Archie, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for talking with us. You're welcome. Uh, for anyone listening that may be new to your work, could you give us a bit of a background of how you got started? Okay. I was born and raised in Gluson, uh, Florida. Uh, I moved to St. Petersburg when I was uh, six months old. I grew up in a segregated community. I went to an all-black high school, Gibbs High School. I uh, went to a middle school that was all-black. I played football. I was captain of the football team. I was uh, president of the student council. <laughs> I was a member of the honor society, and uh, I thought I was the best artist in the world. Uh, after high school, I wanted to go to art school. So my brother Brad had moved out to California uh, two years earlier, and I wanted to follow him because he was my idol. So I decided to join them in 1961 when I finished high school. I left a girlfriend in St. Pete that I uh, really didn't want to leave, but art pulled me west, and I started uh, Chouinard Art Institute. Uh, I really started with student loans because I couldn't afford to pay the tuition. I thought about Art Center, but Art Center tuition was even higher. And they were the uptight school and we were the loosey-goosey school and uh, a lot more creative. So uh, they accepted me. And after I got there, I really enjoyed it. Uh, for two years, I worked uh, to become a fine artist because I thought I was very good. And after a year at school, I decided, well, I'm not as good as I thought I was, even though I was the best in St. Pete. <laughs> but it was nothing compared to the artists in California. So uh, I changed my major to graphic design because my oldest brother, Brad, uh, was a graphic designer. He quit school after two years and got a job working for Capitol Records. And uh, after Capitol Records, he went to add designers and worked there. So when I was a student in school, I used to go and have lunch with professionals, guys who were working on annual reports and logos and, and all that good stuff. And my oldest brother, Brad, uh, used to come home and look at my homework and <laughs> critique it. And I was really very upset because everything I did, he made me do it over again. So I worked over and over. And I used to hate 
to see him come home. And I was living with him because I couldn't afford my own place. So uh, I had my own bedroom and I worked. And sometimes I would do assignments like uh, I would show him one thing and then I would do something else. So he said, do it over again. And I did it over. But the other assignment that I did was mine and not what he told me. I would show that or either I would take them both to class and let my instructors like Lou Danziger, uh, Marv Rubin, look at it and see which one they like the best. But I would never take it back to Brad and tell him, well, you see, the one I like is better than the one you <laughs> you told me to do. But as I matured, uh, after my junior year, uh, I received a, a, a Walt Disney scholarship, and that paid my tuition for my last year. And during that time, I did an internship at Carson Roberts. Uh, that was the hot agency in L.A. Jack Roberts was the owner and uh, Ralph Carson. And they did some ads that was really outstanding. That was one that showed a black kid and a white kid, and they were both blind. And the, uh, the ad headline, was well, it was a poster, and the headline was, The Blind is Also Colorblind. And that really was very profound, and that kind of motivated me to want to work there. So one of my instructors got me an internship there, and, and I went to work. I met Jack Roberts and Ralph Carson, the creative directors, and all the art directors. And every Friday, they would go, uh, once a month, they would go to the Maskers Club, which was a club in Hollywood. And they would, you know, have drinks and, and, and socialize and smoke their cigars. And I really wanted to be part of them. <laughs> the art directors and creative people that goes to masters. So I uh, decided when I graduated that I wanted to be an art director. Everybody thought that I was going to be a graphic designer and design came natural with me. And I worked with my older brother uh, part-time when we did freelance. Sometimes we worked on the posters that you might've seen. Uh, uh, other posters, the, the early posters like the, the Negro in space and the, uh, the Council on Negro Affairs. So we would do free jobs, and if they would give us the freedom to do what we want, and it was perfect. Uh, and nobody had any money back then, so we had to kind of sneak around and, and talk to suppliers to print it for us for free. But at least it helped us to uh, put some work together that we could enter in competitions like CA, uh, Art Direction, uh, the New York Art Directors Club, the Type Directors Club. And we started winning awards in those competitions, which helped our reputation. Uh, after I uh, graduated from Chenard, which was 1965, I decided I wanted really to be an art director because in design, uh, I already knew that. And to be truthful, it was kind of boring. Uh, I wanted a challenge. I wanted to work with a copywriter. So uh, I had a portfolio that could go either way art director or designer because they, the major was advertising design. So it depends on how you compose your portfolio. If you want to go into advertising, you would put in more ads. And if you wanted to go in design, you would just get rid of the ads and just show logos, brochures, and, and all of that. So uh, the first agency I started to work for was uh, Hickson and Jorgensen. And after I worked there for a couple of weeks, I was called to active duty. So I worked so I, I worked for two weeks and then had to leave. But the agency was so nice. Uh, they said, your job will be there for you when you came back. So uh, when I came back, um, I realized that they were one of the most conservative agencies in the city. 
And I also thought, gee, I should be working for Shy Day, not Hickson & Jorgensen. Uh, but Hickson & Jorgensen was the agency that hired me and wanted me. And Shy Day was saying, oh, you can do freelance, but uh, you know, we don't have enough work. And I really wanted to work there, but I never did. My classmate, who was my best friend, Nick Mendoza, I got a job there. And uh, I went on and stayed at Hickson & Jorgensen for about a year and a half. And then something happened that really kind of scared me. I thought I had a secure job and I was really enjoying working uh, with the copywriters, but it was a different kind of relationship. The copywriters would write the copy and then give it to you and say, visualize it. You know, So we do a layout and then they would take it to the client. And in school, I didn't like that concept. You know, I admire George Lois and all of the, you know, Thordane Birnbeck people, and they worked as a team, art director and writer, come up with concepts. So I just decided, okay, to get in, I'll play that game. Then about six months, they had a younger uh, writer. And I told him, because I had seniority, I said, we're going to work on this together as a team. I might come up with the headline, you might come up with the visual, but don't tell anybody, let's just do it as a team. And we started to working together, and that really uh, was enjoyable for a while. And then we lost a big account. And when we lost that account, about half of the agency was cut. And I thought, my, this area isn't secure. I better get the hell out of here. <laughs> so at the time, my brother had set up his studio, and he wanted me to come and work with him, and that was our dream. So I left the agency to work for Boston and Boston. So we started our studio, and that's when we started to do our posters. Uh, the idea behind our posters were, well, we're black, okay, and <laughs> there's a lot of bigotry around. So let's just put it out there. Let's just throw it in there, and the people that don't like us stay away, but those who think we're cool, you know, let's work. So that was the idea of the posters, and uh, it worked. With those posters, you, you utilize design as a, as a force for social change. Absolutely. When did you realize the potential for activism in the role of designer? I thought initially when we designed our poster, it wasn't, it was about social change because it was during the 60s. And during the 60s, there was a lot of political unrest. Uh, there were people that were breaking tradition, uh, the flower children, the drugs and all of that stuff. And we were sort of part of the civil rights movement, but the posters we did were provocative, but they were also offensive. Uh, they were very offensive for to the African-American community, uh, and it was very offensive to a lot of liberal people. So we decided that we wanted to do something just to, to provoke people and to get their attention and to... to Which is what design is supposed to do. Cause them to think about, you know, what this whole situation is. And the Uncle Tom wants you. It's a play off the idea of you know, recruitment, and we want to work with them, you know, and some people will call us Uncle Tom for going after whites to get work, so why not say it and, and put on a you know, Uncle Sam's hat and, and just take it as far as you can, you know. But the thing that we had on all of our posters were we were equal opportunity designers, you know, and that was our branding idea. You know, every time you see it, you read the copy, you know, the for sale, you always see equal opportunity designer. And on all the posters, we branded that throughout the years before branding became a term that everybody used. Uh, we were branding in 1963 and 61. 
And uh, I have always branded myself because I want people to know who I am and what color I am because I'm proud of my color. I'm proud of who I am. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, I'm as good or better than anybody, you know, well, how, how because did this... I'm me, <laughs> you know, and if there's no me, there's nobody. So. Well, how did this particular approach shape your clientele? How did it shape who was, who was okay. working with you? Yeah, it was kind of interesting because uh, it wasn't easy getting the work. Uh, it was through referrals. Initially in school, we thought if we were good, the work would come, you know, and it would be no problem. That is not the case. We were winning awards and doing all of that, but the work didn't come. You know, we went to some design studios and agencies and, and companies and talked to art directors who were farming work out to design studios. And they were saying, oh, you're too good for this. Uh, you wouldn't be happy doing this kind of work. You know, and our attitude was, it's not about being happy. It's about paying the bills. You know, it's about eating. <laughs> but we went on and then there were people that we ran into. Some of the agencies like Chiat Day uh, gave us some freelance and then uh, some companies electronic companies also start giving us work. And then, you know, when word got around that we do a good job, we deliver the job on time, we deliver the job within budget, and then all of a sudden people look beyond race and they were thinking of business and, hey, these guys are good designers who can deliver. And we delivered. And we really got better clients and we worked really hard and uh, we worked on weekends, nights, and I always wanted to do quality work. Quality work was what I, I cared about. You know, the work that you were doing, and especially the promotional materials, it was constantly kind of pushing boundaries. Absolutely. Was there any one piece that caused the greatest controversy? Uh, well, there were quite a few, <laughs> you know, but the one that catch her inward, you know, by the toe, my father hated that. He was very upset with me. He stopped talking to me for a while. Uh, the I don't want to marry your daughter <laughs> had other implications, but I, I put it out there because I thought, you know, that's what a lot of the clients think, you know, when you work with them. So I took off on that. Uh, the four, I think the KKK, the uh, uh, for a discriminating design organization uh, with a black guy dressed up in a, a Klan outfit. I think that was so provocative and and the juxtapositioning of the symbols. You know, that was the first time anybody had seen that. Later on, you know, they came out with the, uh, the White Knight of CA cover, and then another guy came up with the same idea. But we were the first to, you know, hit that double entendre, which we thought was, you know, incredible and, and really enjoyed it. Uh, the, the turn of the century piece uh, with the, you know, evolution of, uh, yeah, this one, it says, uh, in 1860, the term we used was slave. In 1900, N-word, nigger, I'll say it. In 1920, Negro. In 1940, colored. In 1960, black. In 1990, African-American. And I, this, I showed an image with a, a slave running away, uh, which I picked up from an old engraving. In 2000, it just says, we've come too far to turn around. But I think that was very provocative, and people made T-shirts. And Well, in addition to your role as a designer mm -hmm. and an educator, you're mm -hmm. also an author. Yes. Uh, you wrote a book, Fly in the Buttermilk. Mm -hmm. It was released in 2001? Uh, yes, 2001, 2002, around that time. And it's, uh, it's your memoirs of, of working as a designer and an Absolutely. educator. Uh, how does writing fit into your design process? Well, I think when we were uh, 
when I started in the advertising agency business and we started writing headlines and then I went from headlines to body copy <laughs> and then I started writing ads, my own ads and the posters, I wrote the copy and then I thought, I can do that. You know, it's not that difficult. You know, you can think logically and you can use double entendres and, and inferences and other things like that. So, you know, I'll give it a try. So the processes are similar. Oh, and also they gave me a, a sabbatical and I had to come up with an idea for a sabbatical. And I thought that would be a good project because then I could talk about racism and advertising and design, the politics of education and my philosophy of what I believed in. And, you know, it would be something that would be here after I leave. And I wanted that to be passed on not only to African-Americans, but to other people. Uh, this book was for scholarship. I donated all of the funds after I took my printing costs, but I set up a scholarship at the university, Archie Boston Graphic Design Scholarship, and we would give $1,000 to the best portfolio uh, of the students that were selected to go into the upper division. And that has been going on for about, since I retired up to last year. You know, some people say, well, I want to make the money and earn it and put it in my pocket. I want to use the money for a cause, for a good cause. And uh, Great. Well, shifting gears just a little bit, mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about um, your experience as an L.A. designer. Mm -hmm. You've worked in L.A. all your life. Right. In the late 80s, you dedicated a year to creating an archive of video interviews oh, okay. with okay. 20 of L.A.'s legendary graphic designers, right. uh, including one of our favorites, April Griman. Mm -hmm. uh, you also have interviews with Saul Bass and your mentor, Louis Danziger. Right. Uh, why did you think this was an important endeavor? Why is history important? Well, when I was thinking about it, again, trying to come up with a sabbatical leave project, uh, you, you have to think about something, and I wanted to think about something that was unique. And plus, I was getting paid. You know, It's not like I was taking time off from not working with clients. The university paid me to go into the community to do something that was meaningful. And I thought, what is more meaningful than to come up with something that had not been done before? You know, nobody was videotaping those people or doing anything, you know. So I thought eventually those people are going to die and and we won't have a record of anything other than their print. You know, you want to hear their voice. You want to see them. You want to get their nuances of their personality. And I think in the videos that I made, I knew the people and they were very uh, relaxed with me because I had been involved locally and they knew the kind of person I was. So they opened up, you know. Uh, the video that I did with Saul Bass. Uh, you can look at any other interview that he gave, but it's not as warm or as, uh, as just relaxed as the one that he, that we did. And uh, he just kept on talking. He didn't want to stop talking. <laughs> In fact, after the interview, I asked him to, uh, to judge a competition for my class. And he went ahead and <laughs> and judged that, and uh, and then he, he turned around and, and called the company, and, and said, "I want to be a judge of the posters that the students will submit." <laughs> so I thought, "That's all bass. He's a promoter, you know. Uh, he has been branding himself self over the years, and I admire him for it." Uh, that was the most exciting uh, interview. Uh, I interviewed Lou Danziger. My idol, my teacher, Mob Rubin, I interviewed him. Uh, they all had different moods. Uh, they were kind of, one was uh, very uh, cautious. The other were very talkative. Uh, Doug Boyd uh, was the most 
animated person. He was the most prepared. He had everything set up in his office. He showed me a studio. And he was one of the first people in LA to use a computer. So he had this big computer that took up a room. You know? And I interviewed him and he wanted to show me his computer. <laughs> so we took the camera and went in this room and you know, he was so proud of it. And, and I really enjoyed his interview too. Uh, well, after um, taking part in all these interviews, <laughs> did you discover um, something that sets L.A. designers apart from, say, New York designers? Yeah, we kind of had a style. We were loose, and they back east, they were so formal. And so, well, I used to call them the uh, East Coast Mafia, you know, <laughs> because they kept everything within their group. You know, and we were the West Coast people, and they sort of treated us almost like second-class citizens. You know, the heart of advertising and design is in New York. But we were doing some outstanding stuff. It's just that they didn't care about what we did out here until all of a sudden the trend started moving toward West. And then we were getting the attention and then they started giving us more respect. Uh, we had an organization. I've been involved in the Art Directors Club of L.A. And you were, you were president. I was president twice uh, in, uh, I think, 72 and 2001. When we used to be part of the New York Art Directors Club. And before I became president, even before I got out of school, uh, they had broken away from the New York club because the New York were charging um, high fees and we weren't getting anything for it. So they say, we, we, we will just be an independent uh, art director's club and screw you guys. And they did. So we had our own little group and we did our own thing. And uh, there are books that were published. Uh, the book by uh, Louis Sandow published one about earthquakes, uh, which talked about the West Coast graphic design. Uh, Bob Runyon, Robert Miles Runyon, who's the father of the annual report, I interviewed him. And uh, that's where it started with him. He was the one that did the great annual report for Lytton. And uh, he's not even in the AIGA Hall of Fame. <laughs> I can't believe that. A lot of the West Coast designers, well, Lou Danziger, April Graman, you know, where, but there were other people like Ken Parker's. Why is not Ken Parker's uh, part of the Hall of Fame? Why is not Keith Bright, who was very fantastic? There was a group called Garland Bright and Zolito. Uh, they won all the awards here. And they were the hottest agency design studio around. They broke up after about five years. But man, they won all the awards. You don't hear anything about them, which is sad. And I wanted to record them together. But the only person I could get was Keith Bright. And I could only get 20 minutes out of Keith because he was so guarded and so shy. But I did get a chance to show his work. And that's what the video did, too. Uh, the only problem I had with those videos were the quality of the images. Uh, I really was disappointed, but I had to use a, a video camera that I bought, uh, which was expensive. And then I had to use a student to go with me and shoot. And the images, uh, and we only had one camera, so we had to fix it so we can shoot and then keep it interesting. And uh, that was very difficult. And it was also difficult because uh, I broke my left arm <laughs> just before the project and I was on sabbatical. So I was in a cast and my student was helping me and, and I was sitting there interviewing those guys with a cast on my arm and I could barely move and he had to be my chauffeur and everything but uh, we put it together and then we uh, edited everything and, and it came out pretty good but 
I presented it at the university, they were happy. I presented it in the local community, they liked it a lot. But I wasn't really happy with it, so I just sort of turned it into the university as a sabbatical project and forgot about it. Uh, I couldn't afford to get it, you know, produced at the time, and it was too expensive. But in, uh, I guess, 2002, 2003, uh, the computer technology, the editing and all of that stuff, we could do it on the, the computer. So I transferred it from VHS to DVD. And uh, that is how I brought those images to, you know, the DVDs that we have today. I sold them. Uh, a lot of people thought that I would uh, give them away. Uh, give, but then I thought, I invested so much money into this, I can't give them away. Uh, you know, I have to sell them. So I did sell them, but I, I contributed part of the funds to my scholarship, you know, and I took the money back that I invested in it, you know. And now, just this past week, I got an order for Saul Bass DVD from New York. Uh, I've gotten some from Australia. I got them from Italy, from Japan, all over. And this is like you know, 12 years later. Not 12 years, but every year it came out. But, you know, the orders are still coming in, and they aren't cheap, you know. The two DVD set is $49. The, the, the single set is $27. And I haven't gotten one complaint about the quality of the images. Uh, well, it's a really important archive. It's yeah, a very important yeah. resource. And I sense. guess people understand the medium at the time was not like it is where you have these sharp images. Uh, it's a historical document. And I'm really very proud of that. I'm proud of my posters. Uh, I'm proud of uh, my accomplishment at Cal State Long Beach uh, with my students who have graduated and, and my uh, also instilling in them uh, the the, the design process of, you know, how you have to do research and then you have to uh, analyze the problem and then solve the problem. And uh, I've always been a problem solver. That was taught to me by Lou Danziger, you know, in coming up with concepts. Uh, things have sort of moved differently today, but uh, the principles are basically the same. They never change. Uh, if you're getting, if you've gotten an assignment, you have to kind of approach it in a certain way. You have to know who your audience is. You have to know uh, how can I get their attention, and then how will I motivate them to buy the product? And what it was unique about me is, I worked in design, and I knew I was a designer. Then I went into advertising to learn all about advertising, and that's where I picked up the writing part. So I consider myself an art director designer. And I can go back and forward from one to the other because I know them both. And I've worked with marketing firms. Uh, I've worked with PR firms. You know, <clears throat> I know how to promote my product. You know, I don't need somebody to hire somebody because I know how to write a news release. You know, I know how to contact a magazine. I know how to set up a book signing. I know all this stuff, you know. I know how to publish books. You know? Well, going back to your role as an educator, mm -hmm. how has teaching informed your work as a designer? Teaching, you really have to sort of uh, crystallize your thoughts, you know, you, because you're passing this. How do you set up a method for the students to learn and not making them a clone of who you are? So you have to sort of, first of all, motivate them. Uh, students will come into a class and they'll check you out. And I'm being a big black man and very intimidating. So I don't have any problem with the students listening to me, but I'm also 
a teddy bear. So I, I'm, I, I have a sense of humor. I'm nice. I'm nicer, but I care about graphic de design. And some students will misplace my niceness for slacking off. I don't deal with that, you know. When it comes to graphic design, I'm a terror. You know, you got to do it right. You know, you got to make some, you got to solve that problem, you know. And if you don't, I'm not going to buy it. And I'm going to let you know that. And students react to that and they go back and then they do better work. Caring about what you do, about the quality of your work. And the students know, and the students are doing well. And I can look at any of the competition, CA and all of them. And I used to... Uh, make copies of the awards that the students won and and display them in the classroom, you know, on the board. So students were looking forward to that. I used to give them uh, rewards for getting a piece in a competition, a student competition. Uh, that reward was something very simple, but it meant a lot, you know. It was a, a, a pack of Boston baked beans, you know. And those students used to look forward to those beans. And what they did, they ate the beans and then they took the box and they put the box in their studio on the wall. And they had a competition as to who can get the most boxes on their wall, you know. And they told me that later. And I'm thinking, you know, that's that, that's what I'm all about. Striving for excellence, striving for doing good work. I'd like to move on to um, uh, a more recent project that you've been mm -hmm. working on. It's your uh, poster series for Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that? Sure, sure. Uh, I thought about what was going on, the police shootings, the, the rioting, uh, about maybe about two years ago. I've heard about it all the time, and I've been part of it. I've seen it. Uh, we, you know, when the Watts riot happened in 1965, I was in the National Guard. You know, I joined the National Guard to avoid from going to Vietnam, and, and little did I know that I would be in Watts, you know, in a riot where people are getting killed. It's just that I was the driver for the company commander. I didn't have a gun and I with the com and I was the company clerk, so I stayed in the headquarters most of the time, but it was the idea. So that kind of bothered me at a point. And then in 1992, there was a riot in LA uh, and I didn't do anything about it. But recently, you know, after I retired and started seeing what was going on, you know, uh, when Obama became president and then, you know, the, the, the conflict that took place politically, how the Republicans uh, didn't want to cooperate. And then, you know, they were acting stupid. So people started acting stupid. So it started a chain reaction. And then, you know, the cops were doing things and then the criminals were doing things and they were accusing each other, you know of police brutality, which happened, and shootings and all that. And I thought, here I'm sitting here, retired. Uh, I have feelings and I, I have thoughts and, and I'm not saying a thing. So I need to do something. I need to put the word out like I have done with my posters in the past and I'm not going to do it now. So that's what uh, started my new series, uh, Black Lives Matter and the 10 posters. But uh, there were problems. Who would the models be? So what I did is I had shot photos over the years with different relatives, and I used a lot of their photos. Uh, the child support is my uh, grandson. The uh, cell phone is my granddaughter. Uh, model is my granddaughter. Uh, the uh, gangbanger, he doesn't know it, is my cousin. Uh, I took the picture at a class re at a family reunion about 
seven, eight years ago. Another cousin is in there. So all of the people that are featured in there are cousins. So I don't think that they could sue me. But uh, <laughs> I did get their permission to use it for, you know, our family video with music and talking about. But I use it for another purpose. And uh, but I haven't gotten any flag from that. I think it's interesting that um, I see a common thread with the, uh, the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. posters, um, the early work that you were doing in mm -hmm. Boston and Boston, and even your role as an educator mm -hmm. and a documentarian. Uh, design is a, um, is a force that you utilize to affect the world around you. Absolutely. Do you see design as a, as a, as a means to solve every problem? Is, does it have that potential? Well, I don't think it can solve problems, but it can make people aware of the problems by uh, making a statement about it, mm -hmm. you know, and then publicizing it and then displaying it. It's the posters that we did back in the 60s, I don't know how many people saw them, but I can tell you over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, everybody knows about that Ku Klux Klan poster. Everybody knows about that. Well, in the design community, but also outside of the design community. Uh, a lot of people know about a lot of the things that were there, and that's what design can do. Uh, the political poster that I did for AIGA, you know, that was done in the last election, but that can be used continuously until the style change. But design can be a very strong force, but it can just go so far. You know, you have to be an activist too. You have to do things. You have to get out there. Uh, in my case, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I want to get out there because uh, I've done stuff in the community. At this stage of my life, I don't feel as though I, I, I want to do that anymore. I want to do my own thing. You know, I'm doing this Black Pioneers in the Sunshine City. That is my own thing, but it will help a community and it will be something that will be around. That's a documentary. That's correct? a documentary. Uh, uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, the posters were real, well received. They are in a lot of, for my target audience, which is St. Petersburg, where they had seven killings in, in November, gang style. Uh, it has decrease. I'm not saying that my posters did it because it was only in two libraries and it was in a local uh, African-American newspaper, uh, the story about the posters. But at least I felt like I did something, you know, and eventually things are going to get better because, you know, we had riots in the 40s, not in the 60s. We had them in the 40s. We had them in the 90s. You know, we're going to have them in the future. Uh, history repeats itself, you know, and we'll try to change it. But we haven't thus far, so we just do the best we can. Archie, thank you so much for talking oh, you're with welcome. us. That was you're fantastic. Welcome. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad. Beyond This Point is created by Civilization, a design firm rooted in social change. The podcast is audio engineered by Dave West and produced by Eric Blood. Listen to more of our podcasts at beyondthispoint.design.